You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Get into our Bible study. The next 15 Psalms that we're going to study are known as the Psalms of Ascent. They are just a wonderful section of the book of Psalms. These are Psalms that were sung typically by pilgrims from all over the land as they would make their way to Zion to partake of the three major festivals that they were required by law to celebrate in Jerusalem. So Passover, Pentecost, and uh, booths or tabernacles. They had to go up to Jerusalem, and they would sing these songs on their way up to Jerusalem. Even Jewish people today, you'll notice they always say, you go up to Jerusalem. It doesn't matter where you are, it's always up to Jerusalem. And this is the idea. The songs of ascent would be a series of psalms that you would sing as a pilgrim on your way up to Jerusalem. And in that model, they give us many insights about the journey of the spiritual life that we all take as pilgrims in this world. And we'll hopefully have that in the back of your mind as we go through this. It also gives us a bit of background to some episodes in the New Testament. Do you remember in Luke chapter 2, 41 and 42, it says, Now his parents, Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover, And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. Now, the custom of the feast was that you would gather in a massive caravan with all of your family. Do you remember the story? Their caravan was so big that they even lost Jesus for a few days. They didn't quite know where he was. That's just the, the idea of it. And you would sing, amongst other things, the songs of ascent as you went up to Jerusalem. And Jesus would have done that with his family year by year. Also, they hold a very special place in Jewish tradition. Even to this day, they're used liturgically in many different things. We have a lot of ancient tradition about them. During the time of the temple, the second temple, the priests would sing the Psalms of Ascent, 15 of them, as they entered the temple. It says in the Mishnah, which is just Jewish tradition recorded, it says, on the 15 steps which led into the women's court, they correspond with the 15 songs of ascents. The Levites would stand with their musical, musical instruments and sing them. So you get this picture. If you think of the courtyard in the temple, the steps going up to the women's court, entering into the main temple area, there were, there were 15 of them. And they correspond to the 15 psalms because you go up steps, obviously, and they would sing every time they go up. And it just emphasizes the journey as you get closer and closer to the holy, to the place of uh, the dwelling place of the Lord. So let's jump in, Psalm 120. They're only short, these first two. We'll do the first two tonight. Let's read the whole thing. It says, In my trouble I cried to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior with the burning coals of the broom tree. Woe is me, for I sojourn in Meshech, for I dwell among the tents of Kedar, Too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Now, you might be thinking, well, that doesn't grab me as a particularly nice, uh, joyful psalm to start this off. This is actually a lament psalm that actually starts off this journey up to the temple. But this is very significant. It pictures someone in exile, someone who is actually sojourning in Mesek, it says. Meshek was one of these places that was inhabited by people who were not Israelites, actually warring tribes. It was quite a a rough place. What you're seeing here is basically someone who is surrounded by evil people. It says there is someone, they are unable to tame their tongues, and the psalmist, the pilgrim, is feeling in distress here. And in many ways, this is the start of every pilgrim's journey to the house of the Lord. An acknowledgement of sin, 
and a confession of sin on our own part and an acknowledgement that things are broken in the world. It reminds me very much of Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, where he cries out, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Very same sort of uh, concept going on there. And you'll notice in, that it even has the exact phrase, Woe is me. And it has this concept of unclean lips, living in a people of unclean lips. This is the picture the psalmist is giving us. And what we see is a sincere crying out to the Lord. A cry for deliverance. Probably physical in the actual context of the psalmist here, but most definitely spiritual in some ways too. The first step on our journey to Zion is firstly confession and deliverance by the Lord. The whole imagery that we see in this first first psalm, first pilgrim psalm, the woe is me, the burning coal, the unclean lips, this is all really for me being drawn from the prophet Isaiah. It speaks of judgment and cleansing and forgiveness this burning coal, you notice that's an unusual phrase. We have that in the psalm. You also have that in the book of Isaiah, just from one verse on from what I just read. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. This is the first step of all pilgrims, to have that burning coal experience, that acknowledgement of people's sin, and to cry out for deliverance from the Lord. That is where your journey starts. Then he says back in the psalm, Woe is me, for I sojourn in Meshech, I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. Meshech and also Kedar were both considered places you did not want to go. They were inhabited by continually warring tribes in the ancient Near East. And this is a picture of a person sojourning. The word there is emphasizing that the pilgrim did not have a permanent home there. He was just a pilgrim passing through. He was amongst those who hated God's peace. Too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate God's peace. And the word, obviously, peace is shalom. This means much more than just not fighting. This, as we've said many times, is speaking of wholeness in your relationship with the Lord and everything else that goes with it. He says, these people hate God's peace. We see a man who is distressed by the world around him. And you'll all know this feeling. When you become a believer, environments that you previously did not even think about or you may have been quite at home in suddenly become places that are quite foreign to you. Your desires change. The places you like to relax at change. This is what happens when you become a pilgrim. And he says here, for too long he's been amongst these people. And we understand this. Sometimes when life is tough and we've had extremely hard weeks where the world is pressing in, where we've been vexed by things that we've seen in the world, it can feel as if we have been here too long. And that is because our heart is desiring God's peace. We want to see God's shalom in our own life, but we also want to see it in the lives of those around us, our neighbours, our friends, and everyone that we might know. But our heart longs, we know we have another home. Now, we are part of the great pilgrim caravan, you could say, that is on its way up to the house of the Lord. You see the psalmist here, he needed this experience. He needed to be surrounded by his fellow pilgrims. He needed to be on this journey. And this again speaks to us of our need for fellowship. We are supposed to be part of a pilgrim caravan. We're not supposed to be on our own heading to the house of the Lord. We come as a body. We come together. And thus, when we 
think that we can do it on our own, that's most likely you're going to be one of these people who falls by the wayside because that's not what we were designed to do. And the Lord hasn't made us like that. We are a body organically unified together through the spirit of the Lord. And this is what this is speaking of here in, in a spiritual context. We are no longer our own. We are part of the great community of believers that have existed uh, since Pentecost for the church and beyond that for the all believers. Look at verse 7. He says, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. This is a contrast, a very dramatic contrast. I am for peace, and again, this is completeness with the Lord. This is wanting the Lord's vision, the Lord's message, the Lord's gospel of peace to go forth. That is what he is for. We should desire to be with the Lord, to be with his people. That is something we should desire. I often hear of these people who say, I love Jesus, but I hate church. You hear that, I and mean, this whole book's written with that subject. Now, usually, if I give them the benefit of the doubt, it's because they've been hurt in church and they've had bad experiences. We can all appreciate that. However, as a statement, it's not, I don't like the way it's phrased because you know, Christ is in his church. You know, we are all part of his church. We're the body, he is the head. We must love the church. And often, if we can't do that, we need God's supernatural love poured out in us. It's part of discipleship and growing with the Lord but we will have a desire to be surrounded by those who understand God's shalom who understand his wholeness and his peace he speaks word of peace here the psalmist and this contrast is sharp what is the response he is met with hostility and that speaks to us a lot we have a very good picture of what happens when you share the gospel of peace right here a lot of the time you will notice when you deliver peace to a group of people you will be met with hostility because the world hates Christ in many ways and they hate the messages of Christ this is again a very good picture of part of the pilgrim's journey we just have this understanding that the message we have is going to cause hostility it's going to bring division in certain ways yet we know that the ultimate aim of the message is to bring God's peace and that's why we do it however it does just highlight the fact to us again that unity in the church and unity for believers is necessary. These pilgrims probably, this one particularly who's writing this, he's living in Meshech and he's living in these areas that is just full of things that are causing him distress. Can you imagine the joy as he got together with his Israelites family and as they started this journey, leaving all of that behind, singing the songs, going up to the Lord, praising one another, the Lord and heading up to Zion to the dwelling place of God we need that time of fellowship together the world is very hostile to the message of Christianity and that's becoming more so I would say even in these parts of the world but as we often say when it gets darker the light shines much brighter and I think that's a cause for praise and a great opportunity for the church and thus the psalm ends on a very weary note really it's a sigh and it's supposed to be a sigh. This is, again, hopefully you can understand this. It's a sigh of weariness because of the evilness that we see in the world, the brokenness, people rejecting God's peace. Yet also it is the beginning of this great book of 15 Psalms, the Songs of Ascent. It is the beginning of our journey up to the house of the Lord. And this should typify our longing for a better home. This should typify our longing to dwell in the house of the Lord. Do you remember when we studied Psalm 84? How lovely are your dwelling places, 
this is better than better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. This is the same sort of mindset that this psalmist has here as he heads up to the house of the Lord. We long for that green pasture. I'll tell you just a brief uh, historical story about a man called Samuel Rutherford. You might know that name. He's a very influential Scottish theologian in the 1600s. He took his first pastorate in a Scottish village of Anworth. And shortly after he arrived, his wife and his two children died. And this always this spoke to me a lot, this story, because I just having taken over a, past, a pastor position, I have a wife and two children, it made me think about what must this man have actually gone through just taking over a church and then having that happen. It's a, the story goes, he dedicated himself more thoroughly to ministry and he had a vision for the Scottish church that really would spread beyond the borders of Scotland. At that time, the Scottish church was suffering from a very complacent and weak theology at the time. He wrote a book called An Apology for Divine Grace. And in that book, he had some scathing words against the clergy of the established church in Scotland. And because of that, uh, they took his church from him. They exiled him to Aberdeen and they forbid him to preach. He was most quite literally in the wilderness. He describes it that he felt like a half blind man whose one eye had been plucked out. This is, you can imagine, I'd imagine this man at this point in the wilderness in Aberdeen with his church taken from him, his wife and his children, he had the same sort of cry of distress that that psalmist has as we were just reading. And then in this wilderness period, he started writing letters, but he wasn't allowed to preach, so he started writing letters. That's how he got his word out. And this is where the whole message gets beautiful because he was a very good preacher, but he was a much better letter writer. And the Lord knew that. And through his letters, the Lord did wonderful things in the Church of Scotland. He actually ended up being on the Scottish delegation who wrote some of the words of the Westminster Confession of Faith. He had a huge impact. I want to read you just a section from one uh, letter that he wrote to encourage another believer who was in a similar situation to him. And it's just, the man writes amazingly. He says, For your ensuing and feared trial, my very dearest in our Lord Jesus, alas, what am I to speak? to comfort a soldier of Christ who hath done a hundred times more for that worthy and honourable cause than I can do. But I know these whom the world was not worthy. They wandered up and down in deserts, in mountains, in dens and caves of the earth, and that while there is one member of this mystical Christ out of heaven, that member must suffer strokes till our Lord Jesus draw in that member within the gates of the new Jerusalem. Certainly, since I became his prisoner, he hath won the yoke and heart of my soul, Christ has even become a new Christ to me, his love greener than it was, and now I strive no more with him, his love shall carry it away. What further trials are before me I know not, but I know Christ will have a saved soul of me, over on the other side of the water, in the yonder side of crosses and beyond all men's wrongs. I had but one eye, and that they have put out. My one joy, next to the flower of all my joys, Jesus Christ, was to preach my sweetest, sweetest master and the glory of his kingdom. And it seemed no cruelty to them to put out the poor man's one eye. I cannot be delivered. None here will have my master. Alas, fear not. Christ's withered garden shall grow green again in Scotland. My Lord Jesus had a word hid in heaven for Scotland that is not yet brought out. And that's just a small section of the letter. It goes on and on. Just a few phrases there that reminded me of this psalm, this man crying out in exile, expressing his love for the Lord, expressing that the unbelievers around him have rejected uh, his master. But yet he can say, 
it was my joy of all joys to preach the sweetest, sweetest master and glory of his kingdom. We just love that expression there. And then he says, Christ's withered garden shall grow green again in Scotland. And little did this man know that that hidden word that he writes about in this letter was actually going to include his collected letters. He, he wrote like something like 300 of these and they're books, they've been best-selling books. Spurgeon said that his letters are the nearest thing you'll find to inspiration on this earth after the Bible. That's how highly he revered these letters. And I read about six of them and just studying for this, every single one of them, you could, they like quote minds. You could just quote every other sentence in them. They are quite amazing. And he went on and he did have a massive impact on the church in Scotland. And that just reminded me, his heart there to see those green pastures in Scotland, to see more pilgrims come into this pilgrim caravan. But yet at the same time, he was obviously weary and he was distressed and he felt very much like he needed the Lord above all else. That reminds me of Psalm 120. And now we move straight on, almost seamlessly, into Psalm 121, where we get a very different picture. Whereas Psalm 120 pictures a pilgrim in a hostile world, Psalm 121 now shows us that the divine help gives this pilgrim his confidence and peace in the midst of such a world. This is known as the Traveller's Psalm. It is meant to be read any time that a pilgrim on this earth is feeling pressed by the world, any time that the pressures get too much for you, the warlike posturing of the unbelieving world vexes your soul to the point of despair, any time that longing for your heavenly home gets too much, you read the Traveller's Psalm. It's one for the road, you could put it like that. We are to read this psalm. This is the same psalm that a young David Livingstone, the great missionary who just went to Africa for most of his life, Dr. Livingstone, he, as he gathered with his family on the docks before he set sail on this journey, he sat them down under a candle and he read this psalm to them. He knew it was the traveller's psalm. It was a psalm of comfort. After the way that the pilgrim starts his journey in Psalm 120, we now get to this wonderful psalm, 121. It's a very famous psalm. Let's just read the whole thing. It says, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So we immediately see a very uh, noticeable change in tone from the first psalm. It starts off with those wonderful words, I will lift up my eyes to the mountain. The picture we get here is of this pilgrim caravan coming closer slowly to Jerusalem. And as they look towards Jerusalem, they see Jerusalem that is a city suspended on the hills, surrounded by hills, and is most likely talking about these mountains surrounding Jerusalem as they approach them. He knows by looking that he is going to get help on his journey from no one else but the Lord. He doesn't actually look to the temple as some sort of mystical place as his help, he's not looking to the mountains. The point is that he's looking to the dwelling place of God. He's looking to the Lord himself. And this is the confidence and assurance of every believer. Back then in these times, but also for us today. In the real times of life, where we're on that pilgrim journey and things are tough, we may have taken wrong turns, we may be feeling we don't know where we're going. That is when we lift up our eyes, we look to the hills, and we ask that question from where does my help come? And we answer it in the same breath, my help comes from the Lord. 
That's where we look to. We look to the Lord. He is our help. Do you remember Psalm 45? He is a very present help in times of trouble. That's very present. It's, a, it's an awkward sort of translation. What it, what it means is he is an always ever-present help for us. In any time, in any circumstance, if you're his, he is there. It reminds me very much of the picture that we get through the Bible. We've talked about the Psalms. We talked about walking a few weeks back in the Psalms, didn't we? The picture of walking. The picture of looking is also a very common theme in the Psalms. It's actually one that, again, runs throughout the whole Bible. And for me, it, it really opens up the gospel to us. Let me read you Numbers chapter um, 21. It says, The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And so the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord. And you, intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who was bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. And the concept behind this looking is that you are looking in faith, believing what the word of God has promised, that you will be saved if you look at this. Now, this is quite an obscure passage in the Bible, isn't it? And unless you've really been in church, you probably won't, if you speak to any person in the street, they probably won't have heard of the story of Numbers 21 and the bronze serpent. However, the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16 that most people have probably heard of, that we've seen uh, much more popular in the world, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that passage actually comes out of a context talking about the bronze serpent. There's a definite connection between Moses' serpent and the Lord. Let me read to you John chapter 3, verse 13 to 15. It says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. So John 3.16, which again is not a single verse, remember verses are added at a much later date, it's part of a larger narrative, the narrative that gives rise to this most popular gospel verse that's been used throughout history is very, it literally follows on from verse 15, which is about Moses lifting up the serpent and people living people having to look to the serpent in faith and being cured of the snake bite. And of course, remember the typology of snakes. Who do we know who appeared as a snake and what does snakes represent? And so you have a snake quite literally hung up on a standard. A standard was a, usually a cross pole that they would hang their flags on for the different tribes of Israel. That's the picture you get here. And now the Gospel of John is saying that God actually sent his own son to be that serpent because he bore the sins of the world. He became a curse for us. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, we now have the son of God being lifted up exactly the same as that serpent. And we must similarly look to him in faith to be saved. One is the physical and the spiritual application comes through in the Gospel of John. That is what gives rise to the most popular verse in the Bible. And I just find that fascinating. As the Israelites look to the bronze serpent, so we too must now look to Christ. But that doesn't stop the moment we get saved. We must continually be looking to Christ after that moment. Hebrews 12, 2, we are fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat, hand at the, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is a very similar concept that we find to this psalmist who says, I'll lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. We fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. It's the same principle. This is the heart of the faithful pilgrim as he journeys to the temple. He longingly waits for that glimpse of Zion. He longingly waits for the place of God. His eyes are expectant. He's gazing upon the city. Hebrews 11 verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And just as Zion is a very important city and it still has a future in this world, Ultimately, the new Jerusalem, the eternal dwelling place of the saints of God, is what this is picturing for us through Jesus Christ. And then it goes on and it expands on who this help, this Lord is that's giving this help. It says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And this immediately identifies some attributes of the Lord. You could say his omnipotence, that means his power to create. He looks to the mountains And he can simply look at them and actually have confidence and assurance that he has entrusted himself into the very hands of the one who actually created those mountains. One whose power is unmatched and one who is fully able to protect the pilgrims on their journey. He is the sovereign of the universe. Now, usually in the ancient world, not just the ancient world, actually today, you'll find famous leaders add little epithets or titles after their name. So, you know, general so-and-so, commander of this army, commander of that army, slayer of 10,000. Do you remember it in the Old Testament? Saul has slain his thousands, David is 10,000. And you build, you see it in movies, like famous characters, they always have usually listings of great battles and they make these names for them. That's kind of what's going on here because whilst we may have famous battles or events or generals or war uh, medals, here we have the Lord, creator of heaven and earth. It trumps everything. You can't get a a better epithet than that. The Lord, creator of heaven and earth. And then he goes on in verse 3. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. You see, the road to Jerusalem could be the terrain was rocky. It was uneven. There were cliffs. Travel was not particularly safe in these days. And this is similar to us as we walk along this pilgrim life heading up to the, the house of the Lord. We will equally have dangers on the journey. There will be places that we can fall down. There will be places we should not go. There will be bad parts of the journey. Sometimes the weather will be extremely bad on this journey. Sometimes for us, we'll get seasons in our life where it feels like there's a cloud above us. Sometimes the sun will be shining. The the analogies here could just go on and on if you sort of allow me to have that liberty in interpretation there. But when he says your foot, he will not allow your foot to slip. He's coming back to this point about foundations. And this is, again, a theme that comes up all over the Bible. The Lord is a firm foundation. We've seen that many times in these Psalms. And you'll find it carrying through to the New Testament. Let me read you 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 18 and 19, uh, a, a wonderful way that this is put. It uses the image of foundations to actually teach about false teaching. And the point being that false teaching is something that can knock a pilgrim down off his path. It's one of those dangers where your foot might slip. And he gives a wonderful description here. He says, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. The firm foundation of God stands. We need to be able to place our feet on a firm foundation. And really, there are only two foundations in life. Jesus outlined these for us. Matthew chapter 7, 
verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. And that's talking about the word of God in this context. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and, it, and great was its fall. These are the two foundations in life, really. It's the word of God or man's word, as in you accept the word of God or either you don't, and in, in its place you usually put your own word or the word of someone else. Only one of these foundations will stand. Only one of these foundations will have enough support that your foot will not slip. It reminds me very much of the old song, How Firm a Foundation, You Saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. I believe he was drawing from Matthew chapter 7. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus has fled? This is the same concept that we've seen. It's the same concept that we found in the Gospel of John, looking upon the bronze serpent, lifting your eyes up to the hills, seeing the one who can help you. I lift my eyes to the mountains. From where does my help come? The pilgrim looks to the sovereign Lord. He looks to the creator, the redeemer, as the one who will keep his foot from slipping off this firm foundation. We've seen, do you remember when we did Psalm 100, uh, verse 105 in Psalm 19, we talked about all the different ways that we are told to walk in the New Testament. What's interesting is that many of those are repeated, but instead of saying walk, you now find the phrase stand in or stand on in the Bible. And this is just interesting. Romans 5.2, we stand in grace. Romans 11.20, we stand by faith. 1 Corinthians 15.1, we stand in the gospel. Galatians 5.1, we stand in freedom. Ephesians 6, we stand in the armor of God. Philippians 1, we stand firm in unity. We stand on the word of God. The psalmist here knows he will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will neither slumber nor sleep. Now, what's this saying? He neither slumbers nor sleeps, the God of Israel. Not for one moment does he take his eyes off his children, off his pilgrims. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't get weary. He doesn't take a day off. He doesn't have bad moods where he does not want to help us. Do you remember in the story of Elijah? where he's up on the Mount Carmel and he's toying with the prophets of Baal and he makes that joke, where's your God? Maybe he's sleeping. And this, this, I feel like he's, the psalmist has got this. You know, Elijah knew very well at that moment the God who he is here to serve neither slumbers nor sleeps. And thus he could make a joke about the prophets of Baal at this time. The psalmist then goes on and he gives more descriptions of God's care for his people. And this is in the last four verses of this psalm. He says, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Now notice, four times in these four verses, you have the the capitalized word Lord in your Bibles there. That is the covenant name of God. That is a name that is always used to emphasize the covenant loyalty of the Lord. So as we're talking about the Lord who helps, the Lord who is faithful, why, of course, you would use that name here. And we have it four times in rapid succession to emphasize this point. The Lord is faithful to his covenant. The Lord is faithful to his pilgrims, to those who are his children and who are following him. He says he is your keeper and your shade. Again, think of the pilgrims on their journey in the Middle East, ancient Near East at this time. 
sun was dangerous. The sun was hot. It was a dangerous journey and you need shade. That would have been a welcomed respite. That would have been the place you go to have refreshments, the place you stopped and the children would gather around and you'd stop in these different shady places. You would have needed that on the journey. The analogy he's making here is that now the pilgrim must understand that on the journey of life, the Lord is to be your shade. It is to the Lord that you go when you need that refreshment, when you need cooling down from the elements of the world. It is to the Lord that you must go for these times of refreshing. It is the Lord who is your keeper and your shade. And then it says in verse 6, the sun will not smite you by day and nor the moon by night. I love this. Not sun by day nor moon by night. What a beautiful way of basically expressing that the Lord's protection, this help that comes from the Lord, extends throughout the entire 24-hour cycle. It's playing on the previous concept of the Lord not slumbering nor sleeping because at certain points in that cycle, we would usually be used to sleeping. It's again emphasizing the fact that the Lord is not like that. He does not slumber or sleep, whether it's day or night. He is keeping you and he is watching over you. Notice the rapid succession of verbs in verse 7 to protect, keep and guard. Each of these give us a slightly different uh, viewpoint of part of the Lord's protection. The Lord protects us from evil. Remember how the first pilgrim psalm started. There was this man crying out for deliverance because he was surrounded by evil people. He was in a world of unbelievers at this time. He was offering them peace and he was being met with hostility and that was vexing his soul and he was crying out for deliverance and the Lord kept him. The Lord saved him, delivered him and now we find him in this next psalm He's up on his journey onto the house of the Lord. He's looking to the hills in Jerusalem and he's saying, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. This help involves being protected from evil. And then it says, he will keep you. He's the guardian of our souls. That's the way I read that. He will keep our souls because they are his possession now. You might hear the phrase in the New Testament, you know, we are blood-bought believers. We belong to the Lord. We are no longer our own. We are quite literally slaves, bondservants of Jesus Christ. We are his. And if we have a view that God will somehow, through negligence or any, whatever reason we might like to put on God, not keep those who he has purchased, then our view of God is not matching up with what the psalmist has here. He protects us from evil. He also keeps our souls. And then he guards us on our journey. Now, this does not mean that he will not allow us to, to go through these dangerous places in the journey. But ultimately, if your soul is his, you will get to Zion. That is the point that he's making here. He guards your journey and he takes you through the times. This is a threefold description. And for me, it's just a wonderful way to round out just the overall picture that he's giving us here of the Lord's compassion and the way the Lord watches over us. And let's just finish with this last verse tonight and we'll save the rest for next time. It says, the Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And you see how the last psalm ended. It ended abruptly. It was a distressing. You could groan with the psalmist, with the pilgrim. You understood his position. But now, having looked to the mountains, having meditated on the Lord, having talked about his help, his compassion, his covenant loyalty, we have just this wonderful expression, this beautiful verse that finishes this psalm. It is basically saying that the Lord's help extends to all the journeys a pilgrim may have, going in and coming out from now and forevermore. I actually have this verse, if you've ever been to my house, you'll notice that I have this verse uh, in small writing above my front door on the inside. And obviously the idea of this is, I chose it because it's the traveler's psalm, 
and that every time you leave your house, do you remember in the, the Jewish tradition and the Christian tradition, actually, your home is supposed to be a sanctuary. Fathers are considered to be priests and the household is, is like a small temple. The altar was the dinner table and the graces and the prayers and the blessings and all these, that's the way it was thought of. Your home is your sanctuary. And what it's saying is every time you leave your sanctuary to go out into the wilderness, remember the promise of the traveller's psalm, the Lord guards. How does he guard? Exactly every way we've just looked at in this psalm. He protects you, he keeps you, and he guards you. He will do that on your going in and your coming out. Not just once, but it says from this time forth and forevermore. It closes with a wonderful picture of the absolutely comprehensive nature that the help that this Lord, this creator of heaven and earth, gives to his people. It is day and night, it is in and out, it is now and forevermore. The Lord is our keeper. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.